0: In America's 24-hour news cycle, the generally low tenor of our current political dialogue makes it easy to feel like things are just getting worse. We're living through a time in American society where both sides seem to think they are losing the culture war. During times like this, it's urgently necessary to step back and gain perspective and context to understand not only our past, but also to illuminate our future. Our guest today is positioned to help us do exactly that. Lee Edwards is a distinguished fellow in conservative thought at the Heritage Foundation and is a leading historian of American conservatism and author or editor of more than 25 books. We'll speak with Lee on his amazing life and the future of the life and liberty movement. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law, and we're joined today by Lee Edwards. Lee, it's so good to have you with us. Well,
1: I'm delighted to be here, particularly to be associated with Americans United for Life, which uh, I go back to the early 1970s.
0: (laughs) That's as far as we go back, so that's the beginning.
1: (laughs) Well, as a matter of fact, I think I had something to do with your first honorary chairman,
0: we're excited to hear about that, yeah. We, and we've also got Noah Brandt with us here from I, Americans United for Life. I'm such a Lee
2: Edwards fanboy.
0: I'm so ex- i so, just I'm excited to be here, Tom. I'm excited to be here, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. It's good. I'm glad that we haven't buried the lead. Yeah, there, there's uh, some amazing history to get into with your your life with Americans United for Life, and and also your works uh, as it illuminates these issues. So I want to get a feel for how someone develops a career like yours. Uh, I know you're in Virginia now, you're in the D.C. area, um, but that hasn't always been home. And so where was home originally? What brought you to D.C.?
1: Well, actually, th- this, is, this is my life, as they used to say, uh, here in, in the Washington, D.C. area, because my father, who was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, moved here in the 1930s when I was a baby, although I was born in Chicago, on the South Side. Now, this is very important, Tom, <laughs> that I was born on the South Side. I'm with the White Sox, not with those Cubs. <laughs> Thank
2: goodness. Th- as, as, as a St. Louis Cardinals fan, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're not a Cubs fan. <laughs> um,
1: and as a matter of fact, I, I was born just a couple of blocks from Comiskey Park, wow. at uh, lying in hospital. So, Dad moved here, uh, then covered the White House, covered the Senate, covered the Congress, national political conventions... Uh, presidential campaigns, from every president, from FDR through Nixon. Uh, so this is my life, <clears throat> politics, uh, government, and particularly from a conservative point of view. <clears throat> he was uh, working for the Chicago Tribune, which was a conservative newspaper at that time. He himself was conservative. <clears throat> and uh, my mother was a, well, I wouldn't say a professor, but a teacher of English, who had taught English. So she was also involved in politics with Republican women. So I really had no choice, Tom. I mean, uh, I, I guess I could have rebelled all out, uh, but I did not. I accepted the wonderful example of my father and, and my mother, that uh, politics was, was an honorable career, a noble calling, even if you will, somebody once said. And so I found myself involved in politics and government all my life.
0: You were conscripted into the Liberty Movement in a sense, huh? <laughs> so you've done so many things over your career. One of the interesting moments was your organization of the largest, I think, public demonstration in support of soldiers in Vietnam. Is that right?
1: Yes, that was in November of 1969, and this is about a decade, of course, of of extreme uh, division. Really, I think uh, the nation was as rent as, as apart as much then as it is now maybe even more then, because literally a life and death issues were involved here young men did not want to go to vietnam to be involved in war and perhaps to be to be killed so they were really fighting for their lives you might say but at the same time there were very wonderful young men who were there fighting this war and we saw it as a not a civil war between north and south vietnam when I say we, I mean conservatives of the day, <clears throat> not as a civil war between North and South Vietnam, but as a crucial conflict in the Cold War, therefore it was an honorable one to be fought. And so we determined that what needed to be done was to have sent a message of, to our fighting men in Vietnam that Americans did support them, that all these demonstrations and all of these uh, People saying, you know, uh, come home, come home, come home, as sincere as they might be, tended to make the soldiers and the American boys over there feel they were not not doing the right thing. So in November of 1969, we did organize this rally. It was, and I think still is, one of the largest, because about 25,000 people turned out, one of the largest pro not so much the Vietnam War, but pro the fighting men in Vietnam. And we did it on Veterans Day. So that's the reason why we got the support of the American Legion and the VFW. And as the kickoff, and I happened to be wind up as the, as the coordinator, as the kickoff, I looked out at these 25,000 people and we had distributed a number of small little miniature U.S. flags. And I said, to the, the assemblage, I said, raise your, your hand with the flag and wave that flag as ho- and hard and high as you can, and let's show the world the real face of America. And some uh, 25,000 people did that. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment, a beautiful picture, which, by the way, wound up on the cover of Time magazine the following week.
0: Incredible. That's powerful. <laughs> I think it's it's amazing, you know, as we consider life issues broadly, you know, conflict and war and national defense and the nation's strength all intersect with those issues. And I think, you know, today we've, we've got the attitude, especially after Afghanistan and Iraq, we had many people saying, you know, we've had to support the troops. But our dialogue and our attitude toward that at home was often compromised, I think, by the, the severe reactions of, of different strains in American life of, of what does that mean? What does that look like? And so I think... This image that you've just painted us of this uh, support is beautiful.
1: We did our best, and it was so tragic that the, the young men came back from Vietnam, those who didn't, didn't die, and they did. And that was because of <clears throat> not our military, but because of our leadership in the White House and, frankly, the, the non-leadership of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who will ever after have to answer for the 58,000 Americans who died in Vietnam. But, as a result, those American men came back, <clears throat> the troops, and they were not welcome. and as a matter of fact, they were castigated, and they were mocked and they were scorned and i that's such a terrible thing, and there have been some terrible scars which came out of that that experience, And we can't let that happen. We can't get involved if we're going to get involved into a military conflict <clears throat> to have very clear why we're fighting. And what is the best way to end the fighting, hopefully end it in peace?
0: So, Lee, you've written or edited, uh, as we mentioned, more than 25 books, a few of which we'll speak about. Uh, But I wanted to ask you broadly, how does it feel to have such an expansive body of work? I think that sets you apart in many ways from authors who focus on maybe one issue over the course of maybe an entire literary
1: career. Churchill once said, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, he was asked... uh, what is history going to say about you? And he said, Well, I know what history is going to say about me because I'm going to write it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Love that. That's right. So
1: I, I did not set out to write the history of the modern conservative movement. I began by just first writing a little book about Ronald Reagan, <clears throat> and then the, I did a, a handbook with my wife Anne You Can Make the Difference. And then I got involved very much with politics and public affairs here in Washington, D.C. And after about a decade or so, I got out of that. I was burned out case, as a matter of fact. And I said, well, I really want to go back to teaching and writing. And I, all of a sudden, I could see something occurring to me. What I could do would be to focus on the, uh, the movement and to write about its uh, leaders about it. it's the individuals and the institutions that make up the movement. So that's really been a been a deliberate goal of mine. But it was not at the beginning. At the beginning, I was just trying to write a book uh, about a guy whom I admired very much, Ronald Reagan, and then to do that, that political action uh, handbook.
2: Do you like the term historian Lee? Like, do you? Is that a? How do you feel about being considered a historian?
1: <laughs> well, people say, "Well, what are you?" And I say, "Well, I'm a writer." <laughs> Uh, but then if they, uh, if they want to get, and I guess if I'm in a more academic setting, <laughs> then I may say historian.
0: Yeah. Is writing for you different now that you've had so much experience doing it? Does it get easier?
1: Well, I think it's, it's easier in this sense that I do know the backgrounds of so many parts of the puzzle. So when I take up and write about Bill Buckley, or, or Ronald Reagan, which I've done more in the last 10 or 15 years or so, I don't try to write a 700-page or a three-volume uh, biography. I'm trying to present the essence of that individual, the essence of his personality, of his philosophy, and what have you. And that, I think, um, does come fairly easily, because I, I, know, I know what to leave out. <laughs> yeah I know what to leave out and what to include in telling as truthful a story as I can about people like like Buckley and Reagan.
0: Lee, why are you passionate about fighting for a culture of life and laws that reflect that?
1: Well, I think that's probably been been passed down to me from my father and my mother. Uh, both we didn't talk a lot about about the life issue, but it was very clear particularly where my, my mother was, stand what, uh, what was important. <clears throat> and I think also my father covered many, many, many of the most important hearings and events and stories of the, of the day. We're talking now about the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, the height of the Cold War, of, of communism. And he instilled in me a very strong, visceral, uh, I would say not just empathy or dislike, but even hatred of communism because it is so anti-life and because it is aimed so much at eliminating religion, eliminating the the human rights, the human dignity, the human individualism. And because of that, to me it was a very natural thing when along came Roe v. Wade and even before that Uh, to get involved in the life movement.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, I think you saw just recently President Trump uh, issued a tweet congratulating China on 70 years of communist power, essentially. And he was criticized for this by folks from all sides of the political spectrum, I think rightly so. Uh, Folks making the point this is a, a regime, a communist regime that does not value human life. You can look at that in a, in a very direct way in terms of their one child policy that existed for decades.
1: And the forced sterilization, which went along with that, is an integral part of it.
0: Or their current repression today of, of different uh, undesirable populations that, that they've targeted. Um, and so I the think the
1: Uyghurs, uh, the Tibetans, uh, the Falun Gong, uh, Christians, whether both Protestant and Catholic as well. I, I visited uh, the mainland of China. Thirteen years ago now, and uh, my uh, I went to mass there uh, one Sunday in the very large cathedral. Now Beijing is a city of about at that point somewhere between fifteen and twenty million, and my young communist handler who came with me uh, to mass was very proud of this. It was a beautiful cathedral, and I said, "Well, this is really very impressive. How many Catholic?" Churches are there in Beijing? She paused for a second. She said, "Well, there are at least two that I know of."
0: Well, you brought her to mass, though, huh? Yes, I did. There you and,
1: go, and and prayed for her.
0: There you go. Yeah, I think, and that's where folks were making the comment. You know, this is a regime that earned its power, so to speak, at the end of a rifle yes. against its own people, right? Against its right. own people, and so these are the extent to which war is a life issue. Is is the sense in which it is a destroyer of human life broadly? And war, especially waged indiscriminately uh, or in situations like the, the rise of the Chinese, is something that needs to be confronted.
1: It does, and I think it's important to understand that the Communist Party of China really rules uh, in China. Uh, they, they make all the decisions. They will do whatever they have to do to stay in power. And the source of their philosophy is very simple. It's one man, Mao Zedong, who is still revered. Who is still uh, featured and quoted all the time, and I always like to point out that one of his most famous maxims, and you made even a paraphrase of it a little bit time ago, there, Tom, and that is that this is Mao said: "Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun," and that, if you want to sort of sum up with the political philosophy of uh, the, the Communist Party of China is. There it is in those few words. That's why, tragically, uh, I hope not, but you can begin to see an escalation of violence in Hong Kong, and uh, they will not hesitate to use whatever power they have to to keep that power.
0: We're going to talk more about that in a little bit, but we're going to first shift gears to... Your history with Americans United for Life—you mentioned uh, in our opening, Loretta Young, um, but you know also uh, Joe Barrett. I think uh, you and, and Joe were involved with a thing called Life Pack in the 1970s. Is that right?
1: Yes, it is.
0: So tell us about that.
1: Well, uh, Joe and I—he would—he was a Democrat, and I was uh, working with the other party. Uh, but we got—we bumped into each other in some, I guess, was some pro-life event and we were talking back and forth we were both political activists in those days and we said uh, you know what what we need is some kind of pac political action committee but not aimed at people running for the US congress or the senate or whatever let's 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 lower the the the, the sights a little bit and talk about training people who are running for the state legislature because after all that's important where a lot of the decisions are going to be made this is post Roe vs. Wade, by the way, seventy six, seventy seven, And so we founded Life Pack. That was what we called it. And we began holding seminars in uh, this area uh, Maryland, uh, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. I think we even had one in New York for, the, for a couple of years. <clears throat> and we had uh, one of our, I think it may have been our first seminar. And what we did, we went through. Politics, what it's all about, and Joe was an expert at door-to-door campaigning and canvassing and identifying and getting out people. And he was was really eloquent about that. And I would talk more about the media side and the importance of principle and uh, knowing what why you're why you're running. We had a pretty good team, and at the end of our, I think it was our first seminar, this young man bounces up to us and he says hi this is my name is chris smith and uh, incredible and I, I want to run for the state legislature maybe one day i'm going to run for congress
2: that's incredible so he did just i mean he's been in congress now for uh,
1: 40 years wow almost since that time so well, he began there. So maybe we had a little something to do with it. That it, it he's
2: fun. one of the strongest pro-life advocates on the Hill yes. now. It's, yes, he is. Prolific. Has been.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: We've spoken on Life, Liberty, and Law previously with Matt Hadro, who worked with Congressman Smith uh, for a time on Capitol Hill. So it is incredible these the way, the way these relationships kind of flow over one another. So Life Pack in the 1970s led to this work. Uh, and then what was your intersection with Americans United for Life? Because we were founded in 1971 originally in Chicago, um, by uh, a number of different folks uh, coming at the life issues from a number of different perspectives. So there was a lot there. There was a lot going on in those early years, even before Roe.
1: You know, Tom, I cannot remember the the specifics, but I do know this. It was not 71. It was 70. So even before you guys were founded, I was involved. Now, whether you came to me or I came to you or out of a discussion, and I can't recall you know, who at that point was, was the CEO. <clears throat> and, I, and I said, well, you know, Loretta Young is very strong pro-life person out there. Uh, maybe we can get her to be your honorary chairman. And they said, oh, it's a terrific idea. I said, okay, well, uh, I'm gonna see what I can do. <clears throat> and uh, coming out of the, the Goldwater campaign and some other, the Reagan campaign and so forth, I knew some people in Hollywood, and I arranged to, to interview and to spend some time with Loretta Young. So this is 1970. She is in her mid-50s, as I recall. Uh, and I went to her home, and I waited, waited, and they, she's, she's coming. And for those people who remember her very famous show, Loretta Young Show, she would always come down <clears throat> a uh, the steps and then would twirl would twirl and sort of pose there. So I look up and here comes Loretta Young <laughs> down the stairs and she stopped and then twirled <laughs> just as she did on TV and sort of posed for me. And I said, Oh, you know, Miss Young said, Oh, please look, call me Loretta. And so I spent the, we spent the rest of the day uh, with each other. Uh, and we talked about so many things. We talked about the, the, the pro-life movement, talked about films he had done, talked about television and we, she said, well, let's have dinner together. So I wound up in Hernando's hideaway, just the two of us. Uh, and after uh, emboldened, after two martinis, um, I looked at Loretta and I said, Loretta, we'd love to have you as the honorary chairman. She said, oh, don't be silly. Of course I'll do that. Of course I will. And we kept on talking about what she might do in that, uh, how she might be of helpful to that. And she was pleased to to join up uh, in this great battle for life. And my only disappointment, Tom, was it was a great day. It was a wonderful evening. Uh, was I didn't get a good night kiss. <laughs>
2: <laughs> she, it, it's such an amazing story, Lee. And it's important to point out, I mean, she was a very prominent, famous actress in, in pop culture. It would almost be like today if like someone like Ellen DeGeneres or like Jimmy Fallon or something was the head of a pro-life group. She was a really salient force in the culture. And it was really amazing that at the very beginning, you were able to get her on board for this mission of a new group of a new pro-life organization.
0: Yeah, it's amazing when you look back at, uh, at the news archives, you know, she's quoted there in, this is a, a piece from uh, December 1971. And uh, Loretta Young is quoted as saying, if a famous name can easily sell soap, which is a secondary issue, it should be able to convince people that life itself is the number one issue, uh, unquote. And, uh, and she also talks about, uh, she uses language that's striking today, even, I think, in the sense that it's it's true, but it is, it's bold language. Miss um, uh, Young mm-hmm. referred to abortion advocates as people with, quote, brutalized consciences who argue about when a baby is eligible for death, unquote. I mean, this is language that wouldn't be unfamiliar to a Lila Rose or a David Daleiden.
1: And I think it's important that this, this was Loretta Young speaking. Uh, this is not a, you know, a speechwriter or a manuscript. Somebody had written a, a text for her. You weren't feeding her lines or something. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. and that, that same kind of language is so striking, but it is what she was, the same kind of bold rhetoric that she was using when we were talking.
0: Yeah. And there was a piece more recently, you know, that what I was just quoting was from 1971, but BuzzFeed actually had a more recent piece um, on uh, Loretta Young and what came out later, I guess, through her daughter that apparently uh, Young had been pressured essentially to uh, consider abortion in order to maintain her status in Hollywood, in order to continue acting. And so I think, you know, as you kind of put those pieces together and understand what would lead someone to this issue... Um, You understand that something we've come back to again and again at Americans United for Life and in the pro-life movement broadly is that an essential mischaracterization at the heart of these issues is that for many women, it isn't a choice. And for many fathers as well, mothers and fathers, they're they're feeling a pressure, they're feeling a social coercion to make a very specific choice. So there isn't a range of choice. And I think, you know, Miss Young's witness to that is a beautiful thing that continues to echo today.
1: And I think it also goes to her strength her strength of character, her strength of purpose to be able to withstand that extraordinary pressure which was exerted on her. She was a remarkable woman.
0: All right, Lee, so let's shift gears a bit to talk about three giants of the American liberty movement as it relates to the life movement. Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and William F. Buckley, Jr. You've written an excellent biography of each of these three men. Uh, What makes these men and the ideas they promulgated so... Remarkable.
1: Well, I think if you had to sort of sum up what what was the, the central issue, the central idea for all three of them, it was the idea of liberty. That's a wonderful word. Um, uh, for, for Barry Goldwater, uh, if you go back and then look at The Conscience of a Conservative, a little book that he wrote with considerable help from a ghostwriter in 1960 called The Conscience of a Conservative, and you'll see there that he talks about that freedom, uh, that was the word rather than liberty, but it's the same thing. Freedom is the most important thing. Freedom not only here at home, but abroad. And of course, we're in the middle in 1960 of a Cold War, and that really resonated with, uh, with conservatives and with Americans as well. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, look at his famous TV address in 1964, A Time for Choosing, it really comes down to freedom versus slavery. And the idea would be that we are on freedom side and against slavery, against communism. And finally, Bill Buckley, uh, <laughs> I think always uh, driven by this idea of, of not, so quoting Milton Friedman this way. Uh, Milton Friedman, the famous uh, Nobel laureate, uh, was a, a libertarian. But he and he said this. He said, "Yes, freedom is important, but also just as important is what you do with that freedom." And so he was talking, obviously, not only about individual freedom, but individual responsibility. Uh, and although I don't know that Milton ever took a position on on a life issue, certainly that idea of responsibility, not only to yourself, but in in this case, of course, would be to the child within you, if you're the mother or if you're a father looking forward to having that child, uh, or the family or the community, that the responsibility is not just to yourself, as important as that is, but to the greater greater, uh, (coughs) family and community around you.
2: Lee, you've written a lot about the concept of fusionism and conservatism and the impact that these three gentlemen, William F. Buckley, Ronald Reagan, and Cinderberry Goldwater had on it. Can you explain just what is fusionism and why it's important?
1: Uh, well, uh, way back in, in the 1950s, and uh, when Bill Buckley started National Review, he had in mind not just starting a magazine or a journal but he said, what we have in mind is a transformative journal, which will influence and help to create a movement. And that was what he wanted to do, was to bring about a, a movement. So he wasn't interested just in, in building up the circulation, but who was reading National Review, who among the, the writers and the uh, journalists and the politicians of the day uh, Could they be influenced by what we would publish in National Review? Okay. Well, how do I do that? Well, looking at the movement at the time didn't exist. Uh, You had a few isolated individuals and various outposts (laughs) around the country. So he said, I'm going to bring them together. So he brought together traditional conservatives, libertarians, and anti-communists, put them on the masthead, but sent a signal. Because these were the three major strains of conservatism in that day, but nobody had ever tried to bring them together and to put them on course to take on a clear and present danger like communism abroad or like liberalism here at home. And to the advantage of doing such a bold thing was the fact that uh, there was a clear and present danger in the Soviet Union, and therefore that he... And conservatives of the day used uh, communism as a cement, if you will, to bring together and to keep together libertarians and traditional conservatives. That's what fusionism was all about, to bring these different uh, strains, these different uh, uh, paths of of, uh, conservatism together and to keep them together through what? Through saying, okay, let's not talk about our own differences that we have and they're considerable between libertarians and traditional conservatives but let's focus on what is the the danger and the challenges whether it's overseas or whether it's here at home in the 1950s when bill started national review it was liberalism today it is a a disturbing trend particularly among young americans towards towards socialism
0: yeah with that lived the lived witness of what that is right and as that's come history, as the Cold War has receded into history, we've lost examples other than still sort of distant examples or minor examples, you know, the Venezuela example yeah. or others that people aren't connected to in the same way that, that, you know, the Soviets were the threat that they were, or the Chinese even today, we think of more in economic terms, even more than social terms.
2: It, can fusionism still be successfully without that, as you say, that cement of anti-communism? Like what can what can substitute in for that?
1: That's a wonderful question. The The short answer is yes, of course. Uh, but the long answer is it would be difficult, but it's not impossible. It will take two things, in, in my view, to bring together. Because today you have not just three strains of conservatism, but maybe, and I was doing a list the other day, uh, at in my office, and and I came up with fifteen <laughs> different strains of conservatism. Well, I was probably uh, dissecting more more than I had to. So let's say that's let's say that it's let's say that's a half a dozen. Maybe it's a few more than that. Fifty years ago was one thing to bring together three strains. Today to bring together six or eight different strains is. Uh, not impossible but it is difficult how can it be done it will take two things it will take a clear and present danger uh, whether it is a realization of just how serious the challenge of china is and i think it's far very serious <clears throat> and also the challenges here at home whether it's the socialism or the 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 rather naive belief in and a socialism preached by uh, by Mr. Sanders. Um, so that can be done. But at the same time, it requires leadership. It requires leadership. We were fortunate back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s to have first Barry Goldwater, then Bill Buckley, then Ronald Reagan, who were master fusionists. They were able to bring people together and to keep them together through diplomacy, <clears throat> through flattery, uh, <laughs> through, uh, through appealing to their, the, the, the better angels of their nature, to, to quote Michael Novak, that can be done. <clears throat> Are there such leaders out there right now? No one leaps to mind, but it may be that it's no one person. Right. It may very well be that it's a group, it'll be a group of people working together in more or less um, loose uh, cooperation, journalists, um, <clears throat> politicians, uh, professors, uh, businessmen, uh, even even uh, perhaps uh, labor leaders as well. I think the potential is there. It will need some particular crisis. I think that will sort of make people stand up and realize here's what must be done.
0: We've talked before about you know George Washington's farewell address and George Washington's. Sort of witness and, and warning against excessive <laughs> factionalism in American life. And that idea that, that faction is a threat, I think, is something that can be worth returning to as we consider the value of fusionism, but more broadly, the value of Americans coming together around a national identity as Americans, the shared values that we have in common, the, the things that we share in community and neighborhoods and families, in our states but also when it comes to just the truth that we can recognize on life issues as an example, where these things at the end of the day, aren't political issues. Um, They, they start from the same sort of recognition that Loretta Young showed, which is first to say, well, what is the truth? Is this a human person? And if it is, what do we owe to that human person? And what do we owe to one another uh, if we're confronting these issues? So as life and, and liberty, relate to one another, it, it does come back to exactly what you've talked about, Lee, of you know, well what what are you doing with your liberty? Are we doing things worthy of the name?
2: Lee, you've written a great book on Senator Goldwater. He's remembered for his evocative line at the nineteen sixty four GOP convention that extremism in defense of liberty is no vice and moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. Uh you know, I think we both agree that there is a time for prudent moderation. But that quote is particularly meaningful for us here at Americans United for Life and for other people in the life community as we seek to preserve the sanctity of life for for everyone. Uh, you know, some people think that's extreme. They are they call us extreme. What, what do you take from Senator Goldwater's quote, and how do you think that it applies to sort of people who are interested in life issues?
1: Mm, I think that that uh, that sentence uh, is is really worth. You know, parsing so carefully uh, and and making making and making people see that it has application to today. In 1964, one of the problems uh, politically was there's there no such thing as a spin meister. There was no such thing as a as a spin city. <clears throat> there was no such thing as a as a spin center where after a major speech like that, all the reporters would have gone to this room and there would be all of the proponents, uh, in this case of Senator Goldwater, with his campaign manager, his director, regional people, maybe the Lord knows, maybe even his wife would have been there, all kinds of people, and the senator himself, <clears throat> to put it in context and saying, for example, well, you know, you think that extremism uh, that is, is a... <clears throat> An extreme statement, what about patrick henry give me give me life or give me liberty or give me death. What about what uh, Reverend King said in his letter from a Birmingham jail, in which he talked about it being an extremist for for liberty, uh, for civil rights? We didn't provide that kind of context. All that we did was to let people sort of make up their own minds. But they needed some guidance. They needed some historical context. And I think that's where organizations like AUL, Americans United for Life, come in. And that is, they can take an issue like life and put it in context, in an issue like abortion, put it in the context, not just say, you know, abortion is wrong, but to give it some historical context, some philosophical context. That, that kind of contribution to an issue like that, it seems to me, is all important. Um, years later, I asked the senator, I said, what did you think of that statement? <clears throat> he said, well, I'd make it again today. But at the same time, he said, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd make sure that I'd try to explain it a little bit better than I did. In his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, this is an a, a, uh, example of context I think is important. <clears throat> in the Conscience of a Conservative, he says, there are two sides of man, the material side and the spiritual side. And he said, there's no question that the material side is important. And that was a libertarian in him, speaking out, you know, the importance of private property and so forth. <clears throat> the material side is important. But there's also the spiritual side of man. And he said, and he wrote, the spiritual side is more important than the material side. And that was the traditional conservative in him. And that was, I think, Barry Goldwater speaking as the conscience that he was and, and is still, for, for a lot of us, remembering what he said and did for, for the cause all those years ago.
0: That intersects, too, with mm-hmm. a conversation that's ongoing here at, on Life, Liberty, and Law about the role of virtues and cultivating the virtues in our own lives and in relation to one another, that virtues can't be worked out abstractly, right? They can't just be something we read about or something we think on in our private space. You know, we can only show charity to another person in another community. We can only show a love or um, a prudence to a family member, to somebody who needs help, Um, you know, a a father uh, who needs to be taken in because he doesn't have anywhere to go and, and choosing to welcome him into our home Uh, even if we have a wife or children or other things, uh, that that are going on and and saying that, yes, come live with us, come be with us. We'll share a life with you rather than responding in a more material way, rather than responding in a way that says, you know, well, we found a great home for you. It's, it's 30 miles away. We'll come visit you sometimes. So those are, I think, very practical ways where you can kind of figure out what does that, what does that mean? This, this distinction between the material and the spiritual. Um, and you see those responses lived out in, in daily life in so many ways. So President Reagan was a great champion of of both life and liberty while he was in office. You've written on President Reagan that although it was not politically correct, President Reagan steadfastly defended the rights of every American from the moment of conception to that of natural death. He insisted that his administration did not have a separate social agenda, economic agenda, and foreign agenda. It had one agenda, based on the principles of limited government, individual freedom and responsibility, peace through strength, and Judeo-Christian values, unquote. I think that speaks beautifully to what we've been talking about, this idea that there's there's one agenda. It's not a series of coalition statements or something, right?
1: Well, I think that someone like, like Reagan was particularly prepared to say something like that because he had thought through his positions going back years and years and years and years, and he had this very solid, deep foundation of thought and the application of certain first principles to issues. So you could, you could ask him almost anything, and even if he was not familiar with the specifics, he could give you a wonderful uh, answer because he was able to draw upon this philosophical foundation which he had acquired uh, through decades of, of reading. Uh, In 1965, my wife Ann and I were in California traveling with with Reagan. He was making up his mind whether to run for governor of California, and he had invited us to join him on uh, the campaign trail. And so there we were in a limo, one car, the driver, Ann up in the front passenger place, me in the back, and... Reagan over here to my side. Between Reagan and myself was my tape recorder, which was not the size of an iPhone, <laughs> <laughs> but was a woolen sock. Now, most of your listeners will not know what the heck a woolen sock is. I do not know. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 it was, and maybe you're still around in the Smithsonian, um, a reel to reel tape recorder the size of a piece of luggage. So there it was, rolling around. We spent two days with Reagan, and he was remarkable. And you could see he was going to make up his mind to run, <clears throat> whether he was talking with young people or old people or business people or women or whatever it might be. He was, uh, he was a star. Uh, there was an aura about him, not only of a Hollywood star, but a political star. At the end of the day, the second day, he said, well, come on up to the house and have iced tea cookies with us we've been working hard so he went up drove up the hills to his home which is a comparatively modest little home lots of electric appliances he'd been working for general electric for a number of years and he went to the kitchen with nancy to, to do the iced tea and cookies and we were there in his small study and there facing me were shelves of books and i thought to myself now wait a minute of course, I knew what the answer was. So wait a minute, isn't this supposed to be some kind of B film actor who only sort of spouts what other people give him to read? Uh, isn't he just a, a, a puppet, a marionette dancing on strings? So I walked over, and there were books of history, philosophy, economics, um, politics, book after book after book after book, and I looked closer. And they, these were some of the classics of of conservatism that even make up the canon of uh, of conservatism. There was, for example, Witness by Whittaker Chambers, a great anti-communist, uh, bio- autobiography by Whittaker Chambers. There was The Road to Serfdom by F. A. Hayek, who was not so much a libertarian as he was a classical liberal. In many ways, although he got a Nobel laureate for economics, uh, Hayek was a philosopher. That was there. And there was also a little book uh, of, the, of the time, very popular, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And then there was a book which I had not read. And I thought, that, wait a minute now, I'm supposed to be a smart guy, and supposed to be well-read. Ronald Reagan has read this book, but I haven't. And it was The Law by Frederick Bastiat, who was a 19th century free market French economist. And I thought, well, but maybe he didn't really read these books. So I began taking the <laughs> books out of the shelves, opening them up, underlined, dog-eared, little notes, phrases, if true or not, uh, what about so-and-so. He had arrived at his conservatism the old-fashioned way, one book at a time.
0: How different that is from today when we see candidates on both sides of the aisle and we think, how much of this is staged? How much of this is handled? How much of this is packaged? You see speech-writing teams, you know, dozens deep sometimes, and you wonder, <laughs> whose, whose words are these really? You know, is this the, the era of the empty politician? What a different time.
1: Well, his his famous speech, "A Time for Choosing," in the nineteen sixty four Goldwater campaign, which he made in the last week of the of the campaign, uh, it is, I believe, our Gettysburg Address, uh, and I think it's it demands it demands careful research, careful consideration, and it ought to be read, and it ought to influence every speech writer of the day, every writer of of today as well. Uh, It is a speech, runs less than a half hour, uh, that he researched, that he wrote, and that he delivered without teleprompter or even a text. All he was working from were a little handful of four by six cards on which he had written key phrases, statistics, and so forth. It's an extraordinary uh, demonstration of one man speaking from you know, deep, deep, deep within him and providing us with his, his philosophical ideas, his practical application of those ideas. As I say, I think it's, it's, it's the equal of almost anything that, that Abraham Lincoln wrote. And I think it really is our Gettysburg Address.
0: And you can look this up on YouTube. It's so on YouTube. Versions of this, it's yeah. also
1: through the Reagan Presidential Library as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember seeing this years ago. It's an incredible, incredible speech. Such, such a great speech. Today. I mean, the,
2: the Goldwater campaign, right in the last last week of the campaign, was just buying blocks of time and rerunning the speech. It was so good.
1: Well, David Broder, who was a political reporter for the Washington Post, said this was the one of the the greatest uh, political uh, entries entrances. By any politician in in a hundred years uh, so even a, a well-known liberal journalist for working for a well-known liberal newspaper like The post could see just what a remarkable piece of political rhetoric this was
2: what separates President Reagan is he was such a compelling storyteller you know it's like he, he had he had these as you pointed out from his reading these ideas that were deeply steeped in history and uh, thought but he communicated them with stories with like stories of normal people stories of what the country is and what the country could be and his like unifying inspiration even though a lot of people called him an extremist and in a lot of ways he held views on liberty that were not necessarily held by all americans at the time but he convinced people and he persuaded people by telling them stories
1: how did that come about? And I've, I've thought about this, trying to figure out. You know, what, what, he was once asked, he said, uh, "You know, uh, what, about, what is the connection between you and the American people? And he said, what, does it sound strange if I say that I think I really am one of them? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, and he was capable, I think, of that empathy Because from 1954 to 1962, he was working with General Electric. He uh, was the host of their Sunday evening program, the GE Theater, which was very popular, top ratings and so forth. But part of his arrangement with General Electric, he would go from their factory to factory to factory and do a little talk about Hollywood. Well, there were 125 GE plants at the time, so he, for eight years, went from plant to plant, city to city, and as he did so, he began realizing they were interested not just in Hollywood, but also what what was going on economically, what was going on in terms of foreign policy, so he read, 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 and he listened, because he was talking to people all the time, and he was listening to people all the time, so... Can you imagine a politician getting any better training for getting the pulse of the people than spending eight years on the road, ten weeks out of the year—not straight air, straight through, but about ten weeks of each year on the road, listening, talking, interacting with the American people—an extraordinary uh, educating process.
0: This is the you know Malcolm Gladwell's ten thousand hours toward uh, toward mastery type thesis of doing something and again and again until you attain excellence at it. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the difference between sort of the greatest politicians in American history, the greatest uh, public voices, you know, the Martin Luther Kings and and the social activists versus the pretenders. You know, the pretenders kind of out themselves eventually because it's clear in those uh, hot mic moments, those off the camera moments when they think they're off the camera that they're not actually comfortable they don't really like being around people for the selfies they don't really like shaking the hands after the event or they make some offhanded comment and you realize they don't really want to be there they want the thing that's at the end of being there but they don't want the process they don't want the the people you've written that william F. buckley followed the adage that politics is about addition and not subtraction multiplication not division can you help us understand what that means
1: Well, two things. I think that uh, this is an example of fusionism, the idea of of bringing people together, getting them to cooperate, uh, to focus on what unites them and not on what separates them. So it's an application of the principle of fusionism. I think also, uh, if we look at Bill Buckley, who could have been (laughs) <laughs> he, could, you know, he was a very wealthy uh, individual, a wealthy family. His wife, Pat, actually was, was uh, had more wealth than he did. Uh, she came from one of the the best well-off families of Canada. So they, they could have, they could have lived a life of the, the most elegant ease uh, of uh, the best restaurants in New York City skiing in Gestalt, uh, uh, sailing the seas in his own yacht and so forth. Yet at the same time, Bill was driven to to give back. And I once asked, him, why do you work so hard, Bill? And he said, because my father taught me to give back what we had received from this wonderful, marvelous country of ours. One of his most... Uh, unknown books, is a little book called Gratitude, and he talks about how can we pay back, and he has even some examples there of how we can give back to this country, this country of ours. I, I said in, in in my little book about, about Bill that he could have been the playboy of the Western world, uh, given his background, given his wealth, and so forth, but instead he chose to be the St. Paul of the conservative movement, proselytizing for something like six decades, almost 60 years, the, the, the principles which lie at the, the heart of liberty and law uh, under all sorts of circumstances. There were times when people tell me the, he obviously was sick, he was not well, he had a bad cold, he was sneezing and so forth, but still he wanted to talk to a 500 young Men and women at Williams College or whatever it might be, <clears throat> constantly driving himself to impart and to uh, share uh, with with particularly young people, particularly young people, uh, the his belief in what were the the first principles of our founding, which is to say, what are the which are based upon the the ideas of Western civilization. So he was always very much aware that he was standing not just on Uh, a Lincoln or a a George Washington, but on Plato and Aristotle and uh, Augustine and Aquinas and all of those great people. He was a a very, to understand Bill, you have to understand he was also a very devout Catholic. I did a a profile of of Bill for Crisis Magazine in the 1990s, and we're talking along about this and that and the other. I said, Bill, well, do you have a, a favorite prayer He said, oh yes, uh, the rosary. I said, "I, I pray it every day, he said. And I thought to myself, if Bill Buckley, who does a weekly television program, Firing Line, who writes a couple of newspaper columns, who edits a magazine, who writes one book a year, can find time to pray the rosary or any one prayer, so can I. I mean, what an example. And I've, I've always remembered that. And it's, it's driven me to times when I thought, oh, I don't have time. Well, yes, you do have time, my friend. Make time.
0: That's right. Absolutely. That's a great example of addition and not subtraction, right? Addition leads to addition. Lee, I want to ask you before we shift gears into current events and some of the issues of the day, about your experience of Washington over a long period of time, how has Washington changed, and what are the things about Washington that haven't changed in our public life?
1: Well, I think the most obvious thing is that bipartisanship was possible uh, back in in the early days. Um, whether you're talking about the 19, going all the way back, now I, I was not that I was not active in the 1940s. That's even beyond my ken. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the great example of bipartisanship was the so-called do-nothing Republican Congress, the 80th Congress, and you had a Democratic, Republic, a Democratic president working with the Republican Congress to produce the Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan, NATO, the Taft-Hartley Act, and also to cut spending and balance the budget. That was all done those two years so bipartisanship is is, is possible jump ahead to the 1990s when you had president uh, bill clinton and a republican congress after the contract with america and newt gingrich's genius what did they do well they balanced the budget three times uh they also passed a meaningful welfare reform act uh it is true over clinton's veto but they did finally get around that so it is possible. It was possible. Or jump ahead to nine eleven, and that that terrible day uh, when those terrorists slammed into the the trade center in New York, the, the Pentagon here, and uh, were only diverted uh, from perhaps the White House and the Capitol by those brave people on that plane out in Pennsylvania. Um, people came together, and as I, I wrote at the time. We were no longer a red and blue nation, but a red, white, and blue nation. Uh, unfortunately, it did not continue. There are reasons why there is, this, there is the rank partisanship, but that to me is the biggest change right now. Uh, the second biggest change would be that the, 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 the language has become much more strident. It has become much harsher. It has become uh, more personal. Uh, it's almost as though if you're in an argument, the first thing you want to do is to throw a bit of ad hominem slang and smear at the other person rather than talking about the issue at hand. So those two things, a partisanship and the rhetoric are the two greatest changes, it seems to me.
0: How about the town itself? The town has grown up. It's become so large. I mean, I think, you know, Washington used to be this little Southern city, and today oh, yes. it's the, it's the, <laughs> the Imperial city.
1: Yes. Well, that, 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 that sums it up. When, when we moved here, that was in the 1930s. Of course I was a baby, but growing up uh, on the periphery, both in Silver, Silver Spring, Maryland, and now Maurice with my own family in, uh, in Virginia, Northern Virginia. Um, it was a small sleepy town, um, the Congress closed down in, in July and August. Why? Because there was no air conditioning. <laughs>
0: Practical reason, yeah.
1: <laughs> it has become the greatest city, the most important city, and the most important nation in the world. And that was certainly not clear uh, until at least the, the 50s or the 60s. And it even probably took about it in that point there. It's become much more aware of itself, much more conscious of itself, much more self-conscious. And that, I think, is not not good. Um, congressmen and senators and, and presidents can get caught up by living in this bubble and not realizing that outside this bubble there's this great, big, wonderful country. Uh, and that really is where uh, the wisdom is. That really is where I think... Uh, the heart and the soul of this country is not here in Washington, D.C.
0: Let's shift gears to one of the things that we're grappling with in Washington, which is the rise of populism. Uh, populism on both the political left and the political right, populism across a host of issues in the U.S. and abroad. It's experienced a great rise in the past few years. What are your thoughts on populism?
1: Well, I like populism. <laughs> I think you can draw a direct line between Barry Goldwater and and Donald Trump. And you will see, politically speaking, that the populist impulse has always been there and has been a major part, not only of the Republican Party, but also of the, of the conservative movement, uh, most memorably, I think, with the new right back in the 1970s, but then with the Tea Party just a couple of years ago. Barry Goldwater was, was a, a creature of the grassroots. He, he, he was drafted, didn't want to be president. So the people said, we want you to run, therefore. Uh, Ronald Reagan would not have won in 1980 without the support of the moral majority. Again, a populist impulse. Newt Gingrich could not have been successful with the contract with America unless he'd constructed a contract which was based upon the people's interests and will and demand, the populist impulse of the Tea Party is the most dramatic example, it seems to me, of populism. Uh, And then Donald Trump, with all of his many, 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 many flaws, how many more many's do we need? (laughs) Oh, Lord. Was the one politician, with the possible exception of Ted Cruz, who saw that that populist role that could be played and reached out to them, draw upon them? And what what an irony that is that this billionaire in a ten thousand dollar suit is appealing to to the populist impulse, but he did, and he still is, and that's one of the reasons why we'll, we'll see what what finally happens. Uh, but uh, don't don't count him out. He's a uh, he's a pretty a pretty good uh, politician. Um, so populism, it seems to me, now, uh, there can be, can be uh, stupid populism, there can be emotional populism, there can be very superficial populism, but I think that there is and has been a role for constitutional populism in the Republican Party and the movement for, from the beginning.
0: I think I've heard it said that populism, when you don't like it, when you don't like the outcome, you know, that's actually just democracy in action, Uh, but people will deride that as a sort of a negative or corrosive populism. And, you know, we have seen that on on both sides of the spectrum and and internationally. So it's fascinating to watch that unfold. Relating to populism, William F. Buckley, you know, famously remarked at one point that he would rather be governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the Harvard University faculty. Is that still true today, do you think?
1: Well, a couple of things, you have to realize that where he said that was in Harvard. So he was deliberately, he was tweaking the noses of the Harvard faculty, which was led by Arthur Schlesinger, who was in the second row. <clears throat> but there was always a a um, even in Bill Buckley, I think, a realization of the importance of a of the of the populist impulse. And that's why he was reaching out and did so to the new right. Uh, which was sort of the, the populism of the day um, and played a major role in the 1970s and lead up to the the moral majority in 1980 and, and Ronald Reagan's landslide victory in in that year that Bill Buckley's primary target both for the magazine and for the for the movement at least in the beginning were the elites those people who, who led the way uh, the 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 philosophers, the popularizers, and that it was later on that uh, with The Firing Line and his novels, you could see him understanding and reaching out and appealing to a broader audience, not just to the elites. So I think he would, for example, I think that he would love the social media or the, 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 um, the potentialities of it. And I think that Bill Buckley would be tweeting night and day if he were around today.
0: <laughs> I can imagine that, yeah. There's a there's a sort of a, a frothiness to our media environment. As many problems as there are in it, and as much as it sort of tends to turn us away from charity and, and basic humanity toward one another sometimes in the frenzy of it, there is a genuine frothiness in it that is reflective of, I think, an older or more almost primal political state as we engage with one another that I think is is part of the The attraction to it lee it looks like age may
2: play an interesting role in the upcoming presidential election uh you know president reagan was 69 when he was first elected uh president trump is currently 73 joe biden is 76 bernie sanders is 78 does it say something about our political culture that all of our political leaders at least the ones who are seeking our highest office are that advanced in age and should voters take that into consideration when casting Mm -hmm. a ballot
1: Well, it is interesting. If you look back, for example, in 1960, how old was Jack Kennedy? I believe it was 42. Uh, I think he was the youngest president ever elected. But how old was Richard Nixon, who was his challenger? 44 or 45. So here were two young men, you know, duking it out uh, for our our top top audience Um, Bill Clinton. Also, uh, comparatively young, uh, Barack Obama, uh, comparatively young. I would not. I would not read too much into where we are today. Um, I'm sure people say, "Oh, well, this just shows you that, that America is bereft of ideas and is run by a bunch of septuagenarians, and therefore it's it's headed for defeat and disaster and death." You know, people can react that way. I think it's just by coincidence that uh, both parties are putting up these kinds of uh, old people. I don't think anybody four years from now is going to be quoting uh, some of the same people that are active right today. I think that when I look around and see who are some of the coming stars in the House and in the Senate, the governors and the mayors and so forth, they are all young. I mean they're all in their 30s and 40s and 50s so I think that um, this is an anomaly that we're going through right now and it could very well be that, that that there will be a reaction to this once the american people begin focusing or particularly on the democratic side and say now do we really want to nominate somebody who is going to be 80 you know in his first year in office I don't think so. I think um, that maybe that hasn't been focused on quite sufficiently yet. And I, I still have enough belief in the common sense of the American people to make their choices and understand that a part of that choice should be, is that person able to carry out the onerous duties and responsibilities of the office of the presidency? It is, it is a, a killing job. And Ronald Reagan uh, I don't mind mentioning him again, was one of the few who was able to go through eight years and not come out looking, you know, 20 years older.
2: I think that's a great point. And I think that oftentimes in politics, youth is overly prized for almost no reason other than pandering. Uh, one of my favorite Ronald Reagan stories that I've heard, you can tell me if this is apocryphal or not, if you know, is uh, that he, President Ray, or I think it was when he was governor of California, he was giving a speech at some University of California Uh, campus and there was a protest of students protesting his his speech and as he left he got in his car and then a bunch of young people sort of swarmed the car and were yelling into him one guy was looking right into his window and yelling you know you can't ignore us we're the future and president reagan had a little notepad and wrote on it I'm selling my bonds, you know <laughs> it's like if, if if you if you're the future, you know there's there's a problem, but he was he was big facetious, right but i, I think that there's sometimes we put too much stock into like this is what the young people want because a lot of times when someone's sixteen or eighteen or twenty, they change a lot in the coming years as they experience life
1: well he he really did write that and say that, but also but <clears throat> whether it was that same time or not, I think it was a different. Time when he was confronted with these demonstrators, and they were this placard was "Make Love, Not War," and Reagan looked at and said, "I don't think they can do either." <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was another one too. Was it uh, against Mondale, where where he there was some comment about sort of an ageism against Reagan, and uh, and what it, what was the retort to that?
1: Well, one of the journalists. This was the the debate between. Uh, the second debate between Reagan and uh, and Mondale in 1984. And Reagan had not done well in the first debate. As a matter of fact, he had lost the first debate. He had not prepared himself well. He's a little bit out of shape. He hadn't been debating uh, for some time. And he knew that he had not done well. So somebody said, well, they're going to bring up the age issue, Mr. President. It's okay. So a reporter asked, well, given... The tremendous, intense pressure under which presidents operate. I mean, John Kennedy, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, was at it night and day for thirteen days. Do you, do you have any any fears or doubts about that at your age? And he looked and he said, "No, I don't." He said, "As a matter of fact, I just want to say here and now that I will not make the youth and inexperience." Of my opponent, an issue in this campaign. That's
2: right. That's right. <laughs> and it's so funny because, like, Walter Mondale was not like a super young guy, but no. it just it yeah. tur- turned it on its face.
1: It turned it around. And what is so telling is that Mondale burst into laughter. It yeah. wasn't just everybody. Could you of the imagine audience. that
2: today in the presidential yeah. debate, one candidate making the other candidate genuinely
1: <clears throat> laugh? Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, there was that moment during the Democratic debates recently where uh, Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris walked up to one another, and Joe Biden kind of re- reassuringly, because he had been, you know, kind of trounced in the in the prior debate um, by Harris. You know, he kind of took her by the arm and he said, "Go easy on me, kid." And uh, you know, at the time they're they're smiling and shaking hands, but of course, you know, the media turns right after that and they say, "Can you believe that that this this man called her a kid? You know, she's an accomplished prosecutor and all this stuff." And that's, I think, an example of just the yeah. the one of the greatest indictments of our political moment isn't necessarily that it's frenzied, it's that it's humorless, right? And and there's almost nothing worse in politics than a humorless politician.
1: You know, if you look at, at Ronald Reagan's uh, life story, and particularly when he was uh, uh, president, and even as governor, uh, he had to be careful because he had so many wonderful stories that he could tell. And very much like Lincoln, I don't know to what extent he studied Lincoln's life. But Lincoln was famous for telling stories and telling jokes. And part of that was uh, Reagan's attempt to, to, to lower the temperature. You know, when People were beginning to explode and yell and so forth at each other. He f- had found that telling a story, a little joke, would ease the tension. It would prepare people to calmly consider the issue at hand. But he was, as I say, had a wonderful sense of humor, used it, and Mikhail Gorbachev understood that as well. He would tell stories all the time about the Soviet Union and its um, inability to to manufacture, whether it was food or uh, tanks or uh, harvesting machines, whatever it might be. And he used that as a way uh, of pointedly telling Let's. This is serious business that we're about, Mr. Gorbachev, but let's let's do it in a civil way. And they did establish a very interesting rapport. Uh, And there was even some talk of maybe Gorbachev finding God uh, towards the end of his life. I think he's he's still alive, if I'm not mistaken. Incredible. So so maybe, and he he met, by the way, with the Pope, as I recall. So maybe there was some kind of conversion experience there. But if it if there was one, I'm sure it began with Ronald Reagan's unique ability to reach out and to touch people.
0: It always has to start with that encounter, a culture of encounter we've talked about before in the program. Yes. If you don't have that, we don't have a society. Um, and this actually connects well with... And that's why
1: it's so so sad what's happening today in, a, in Washington. How many... In, we have We have only... Uh, belligerent bellicose encounters. We don't have civil encounters here at this time between all of these warring parties, literally warring parties.
0: Well, you'll see people around town and there's almost, you know, much is made of sort of like the Tip O'Neill culture, right? That you can disagree um, in in the positions of power and the places of power, but you can still go out and enjoy a steak at the end of the day together, right? That culture is almost totally evaporated where folks are ensconced in their own bubbles, um, surrounded by their handlers. And it makes it very difficult, you know, whether, whatever the issue is, you look at life issues in many cases, uh, it's tough to speak to people who might not agree with you. You know, that's one of our core aims here as we have these conversations on the human right to life is, is to welcome people in who may not agree, who may not uh, have heard of some of the issues that we are talking about and to get them, uh, to engage with us, um, because we can't resolve the issues otherwise.
1: It is so difficult. I don't know whether you saw it's an article in the Washington Post. Justice Kavanaugh having dinner out at a restaurant in Chevy Chase. I don't know if you read this story or not? And he was there with his wife. Maybe it was other than anybody else, but basically himself and his wife at this restaurant, nice restaurant, you know, nice quiet time for him to be by him with his family. And a woman stood up and began yelling at him in the middle of the restaurant, screaming words and. She was so angry that you could not distinguish what she was saying. So here was a, the justice of the Supreme Court unable to have a quiet dinner in a private restaurant without being yelled at and screamed at by somebody. I mean, this, this is where we are with the, the intensity of, of feelings in this town. And it's only going to change when you have the right leadership who is going to say, as Reagan would say, you know, let's calm down, let's respect the other person, and let's not engage in ad hominem, but let's seriously look at these issues and try to come up with a resolution of them.
0: And the key thing, too, is that having the right leadership doesn't necessarily mean we have to wait for the right national leadership. It can mean on the state level, and it can also mean it can start at the simplest level. It can start with an intern on Capitol Hill, Choosing to not be somebody that you know does something like leak the home address or telephone number of somebody during a confirmation hearing or chooses to confront somebody in an elevator in the Capitol, it can start with any person choosing to turn that temperature down and, and recover some of the unity that, that we're lacking in America. Okay, so this transitions well to the struggle for freedom in Hong Kong, actually. Uh, how to recover some of the things that matter, how to preserve some of the things that matter. Lee, you've written recently that Quote, within each and every Chinese, whether in Hong Kong or any city in China, there is an innate desire to be free, to be able to live your life, not as the government dictates, but as you wish. So it was with the freedom swimmers all those years ago, and so it is today in Hong Kong and in many other cities and towns of mainland China, unquote. We've talked about China in the context of its political repression, in the context of of the life issues Uh, and the right to life. What are we to make of developments in Hong Kong broadly uh, today as they're unfolding? And, And what do you think we as a country can do, if anything?
1: Well, it may sound like a terrible thing to say but the demonstrations in Hong Kong and the reaction of the police there is a good thing. It's a good thing. Why do I say that? Because it shows that the Chinese communist government is so weak so uncertain, so unsure of itself, that it could not abide having a conversation because there wouldn't be demonstrations unless the government there, with the backing of Beijing, had forced through certain new measures which would in influence and affect the freedom of the people of Hong Kong. So it was an overreach at that point uh, by the uh, Hong Kong authorities to just arbitrarily arrest people and send them to the mainland where they'd be locked up in a, in a Lao guy in a forced labor camp. Uh, but it's an overreach right now. So it shows just how weak, and I think how divided, uh, people whom I know who are experts on China say to me that there is a serious debate going on at the top leadership of the Communist Party in China. What should be the future? Should we perhaps, and one of them, these people, I'm told, is thinking about, should there be some possible lessening of the of the political dictatorship and allow people to have more of a of a voice and more of a say <clears throat> in the the conduct of our government? So uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I hope and pray uh, that there will not be any 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 terrible violence. Uh, I salute and am just uh, amazed at the bravery of those Hong Kong people uh, because they know what, what they confront right from face to face is somebody with a gun who may use it, and now we can see that they have used it. So that's all. But at the same time, I think we can understand that what is going on may be the beginning of some kind of transition from that communist dictatorship in China to something far more open, something far more willing to uh, recognize and to practice a little liberty.
2: Lee, when you write that in the heart of every everyone in China, and I think you would extrapolate this to everyone, that there's an innate desire to be free, I agree with you, and I I think that's true. I think for a lot of Americans hearing that today, they're much, their hearts are much more coarsened to that idea, right? They might remember during the administration of President George W. Bush, the freedom agenda, and he would make this point. And some people might say, that's been borne out as not true, as we've tried, we've, we've tried different experiments and trying to sort of outsource an American vision of liberty and freedom, and it, it hasn't worked out. So maybe not everyone desires to be free. Maybe people desire to, to live in these other social arrangements. Um, what do you say to that?
1: Well, I think that they might say it until they lose it. And then after they've lost it and are in a period when, when there is no freedom, which they do not enjoy, they're going to say, oh, how foolish I was, how stupid I was to be so dismissive of something so essential as freedom. But I would look and say, well, even, even Mr. Trump, if we take a couple of things, like, for example, tax cuts, uh, deregulation, uh, his position on, on life, which has been solid. All of those are what I call freedom enhancements. And so it seems to me that even given all that's going on right now, the idea that freedom works is so clear, and you can find so much evidence of it. let give you an example. I did some research, and I thought, whether well, any nations which had tried socialism and then rejected it. And I don't mean communist nations, something in the West. Well, it turns out I did some research. Three nations did. Israel, India, and Great Britain. Israel declared itself and described itself as as a socialist country when it started out in 1948. For about 25 years, they were able to follow the socialist line coming out of uh, socialist uh, liberals and socialists from Eastern and Central Europe, who settled in Israel in 1948. After about 25 years, they saw declining uh, income, they saw rising unemployment, they saw an inability to uh, produce, to manufacture, and they realized that socialism wasn't working. And they reverse course and began following the capitalist road as, <laughs> uh, and not, not, a, not a socialist road. Eventually, they found out that the problem with socialism is that you run out of other people's money. That's what Margaret Thatcher once said. India. India declared in its constitution that we are a socialist republic. Again, the same sort of uh, journey that they took for some 25 years following the socialist line, and all of a sudden, not so all of a sudden, not so suddenly, uh, but particularly with uh, Indira Gandhi and then her son, it wasn't working. It was not working. Uh, 50% of India was at a poverty level. They began following the social, uh, abandoning socialism, following capitalism, free markets and so forth. Now, they're not as far along that road as Israel is, but today, India has the largest middle class in the world, about 300 million people. Finally, Great Britain. We should not forget that following World War II, Labour Party won uh, in Britain, and they nationalized everything in sight, again, for some 25 years. It's interesting in each case. It takes about that generation or two. They looked around, the 1970s, and Britain had become the sick man of Europe. That's what it was called, the sick man of Europe. It was a terrible winter uh, in the mid-70s at which uh, garbage was not being collected. Rats were running through the streets. People who had died were not being buried. And along came Margaret Thatcher and said, we're going to go a different way. We're going to go the capitalist way. Denationalized so many different things. And that's uh, turned Britain into a very wealthy country
0: Okay, Lee, something we do on our show is our shot of gratitude. These can be sometimes, you know, heady conversations. So we How like much to,
1: time do we have? And on a lighthearted <laughs> note. It's it's
0: uh, It could be serious or whatever. <clears throat> Lee, what is something you are grateful for?
1: Well, I've been thinking about this, and I have to say I am grateful to Bill Buckley. Barry Goldwater gave me an opportunity to be in his campaign. That was important. Ronald Reagan to to share himself before he was even governor, but I'm I think I'm probably most grateful to Bill because he saved me from myself. And that is that I was over living in uh, Paris thinking that I could become the next Ernest Hemingway. I mean, how, how arrogant can you be? Uh, writing, 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 and being rejected, rejected, <laughs> rejected, and uh, wrote a novel, rejected, wrote short stories, rejected, wrote poems, rejected. Uh, and finally, after three years of this, came back to America and saying, but what do I do now? Do I keep trying to write that great American novel? Or is there something, maybe I should try something in nonfiction. So I wrote a little article about France and that it was going down and under unless it elected a strong leader, someone like Charles de Gaulle. And I sent this off to National Review, and I had never met Bill Buckley, didn't know him, just sent it off, and he accepted it, published it, and it was my first published piece. It was in National Review way back in 1958, I think it was. If not for Bill Buckley and his sending me uh, a signal that uh, nonfiction rather than fiction was where you should be going, who knows? I might still be on the left bank of Paris, you know, <laughs> uh, still trying to write a, that never to be completed novel.
0: That's incredible. That's an incredible story. Noah, how about you? What's something you're grateful for?
2: I'm so thankful that we were able to have this conversation with Lee. And it reminded me that I'm thankful that we can be bound by contracts that we were born into. I'm thankful that we don't have to refight the ratification of the Constitution every generation that we get to enjoy the fruits of liberty uh, because it was passed down to us and that within that framework and within that intellectual inheritance, we can thrive and we can chart new courses, but we don't have to, every generation, reestablish the foundations that allow people
0: to be great. I've got to go lighthearted because these have both been so beautiful. But also, also heavy. I'm grateful that we're getting to watch the Washington Nationals still playing baseball in October. That's exciting.
1: It is exciting. And let me say, as somebody who grew up in Washington, I used to – I watched the the Senators, the Washington Senators. Wow. And I saw Ted Williams hit a home run, uh, but at the old Griffith Stadium and some of the great players with, uh, with Washington – so it has been both a beautiful thing and a painful thing, because I don't know what's going to happen. But uh, I'm not going to wait till next year. I want something to happen right now.
0: (laughs) I understand that. That's not necessarily a conservative impulse, but uh, I'm I'm empathetic with it. Time will tell whether our our hope is well-founded or not. Noah and Lee especially, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation.
1: My great pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank
0: you for joining us for our conversation with Lee Edwards. We're going to link to many of Lee's great works in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please stop what you're doing, open up Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, leave us a review, rate the show, leave a comment, and tell a friend about us. That's how we spread the word about these conversations and open hearts and minds to the life issues and more. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us, life at aul.org. I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.